Luke 7, hearing the word of Almighty God. Now when Jesus concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father in heaven, for this, your word. We thank you for accounting to us this this testimony so long ago that we might hear and believe and obey. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear and it would plant deeply in us this day that we might live out your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to draw your attention back, not just before we did three weeks in Obadiah, uh, but to really the beginning of the summer when we started looking at the sermon that takes place in Luke chapter 6, all the way back in Luke 6, 12 through 19, the setup for the Sermon on the Plateau or the Sermon on the Mount, as it may be called, um, The setup for that, as we saw way back at the beginning of the summer, was a comparison with Moses and the people of Israel. Moses went up on the side of Mount Sinai to commune with God. There he received the law of God. He brought it down to the nation. As he was establishing the nation, he did so with those laws from God. And Moses also established elders to govern that nation. In Luke 6, the author of the gospel 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, draws that contrast or that comparison. Christ goes up on an unknown mountain. There he communes with the Father. While he's up there, he establishes rulers or governors over his new nation, the new covenant people of God through the apostles. And then coming down onto the plateau at the foot of the mountain, he delivers law to them. What does the kingdom life look like? Including blessings for those who follow the Lord with their heart and curses for those who live like the nations of the world. Including a command that is so hard, love your enemies, do good to those who uh, curse you and hate you. And the challenge not to be judgmental as the world is, but to be discerning in our judgment. And many other things, right? This, this whole summer we've been looking at the, the laws of the kingdom as preached by our Lord there on the side of the mountain. Christ has spoken into our lives and told us how to live. And one challenge, one question that might be raised is, does he have that authority? The Jews were certainly asking questions like that. We read just one example of that in John this morning. Uh, who, who gives Christ the right to say these kinds of things? Who gives Christ the right to speak into your life? He, does he really know the type of hateful people that he's telling you to love and what they've done? Does he have the authority to tell you you have to love them anyway? And so Luke gives us this account immediately. He even phrases it just like that. Now, when he concluded these sayings, as he gave the benediction at the end of the worship service, having preached, then he entered into Capernaum. And here immediately comes one who will give a surprising testimony to the authority Christ has to speak into your life. But before we look at the kingdom authority here, We also want to observe in this account of the centurion what kingdom character should look like. Yes, the whole Sermon on the Plateau was about kingdom character. And yet Christ uh, gives us with this account uh, another reminder about what matters most to the king. What will most please him. And so in the person of this Gentile uncircumcised centurion we have put before us several views of what makes a worthy kingdom citizen we for example could start with an implied view of this uh, this centurion if we could talk to that servant and ask why should your master be listened to by Jesus. Surely his response would be, he is a compassionate man. And compassionate men and women deserve to receive compassion as well, don't they? There's some truth to that if we're talking just 
among human beings that the one who shows compassion is more likely to receive compassion at times than the person who is harsh and self-centered and rude. And surely this, this servant would say, of all the centurions who weren't necessarily known as gracious people, to get to the top of the soldiers of Rome, to be in charge of all these men who were brutal warriors, and to go out and subjugate other people, didn't tend to be a rank held by compassionate men. But this man, he's compassionate. And I think that's what the servant would surely say if he was asked, why should Jesus hear your master? Or we have the explicit here in the text, very surprising testimony about the centurion from the elders of the synagogue. The Jews who had such a low view of Gentiles and the uncircumcised. Just read the New Testament epistles. Just read the book of Acts. Time and again, it's the elders of the synagogues who are attacking Paul and Peter and the others who are bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ they, uh, to the Gentiles. They weren't typically very pro-Gentile, very praise-Gentile Certainly not Romans, typically, or soldiers, typically. And yet the testimony we have here in the text about this this centurion, they explicitly say that Jesus should hear this man because he is deserving. He's a worthy man. He deserves to be heard by you, Jesus. And he deserves to be heard for two reasons. He loves Israel. Which is probably the best thing the Jews thought any Gentile could have said of them. He really loves the nation. Uh, there, There were Romans who settled in various lands who just acclimated into the local religious life because they thought it would earn them something. That's not the language the Jews are using here. The Jews are saying, this is a man who loves the people of the true God. And he's a a man who is generous. He didn't just donate, you know, they they didn't have the the cardboard uh, thermostat in front of their church raising money for a new synagogue. And, uh, and see this little line here, he got us to this point, or he said if we could make it to this point, he would double it. No, the language they use is, this man loved the nation so much, there wasn't a synagogue, and he built it. It'd be like a, a person who, who didn't want uh, to be baptized for some reason, right? The centurion, if he was circumcised, the Old Testament equivalent, Uh, he would no longer be able to be in the Roman legions. That's why you had a number of soldiers who never took that last step to join Israel because they would lose their job and they would be in big trouble with Rome. And so he he didn't take that step to be circumcised. For us, it would be equivalent to doesn't want to join a church because he doesn't want to be baptized for some reason. Who knows why, you know, what consequence that would have. But didn't want to be baptized but uh, just announces to us one Sunday, well, I bought a portion of land 
on the outskirts of Greenfield, and I'm building you a million-dollar building, and, uh, and no strings attached. That's the kind of man the centurion is. It's an astonishing thought. Uh, in fact, his love for the nation uh, may uh, go quite deep. There was no Roman. Uh, there was no Roman unit positioned near Capernaum at this point in history. And so one of two things has to be true of why this centurion is here. Either he was a a centurion in charge of of his men in Herod's army, because sometimes a local dignitary under Caesar could uh, get special permission to have a, a, a unit there under his command. So either he's Herod's henchman, which is a bit odd, uh, or he's a centurion in retirement. And of all the places after years of service he could have chosen, he chose here because he wanted to be among the people of God. We can't speak to which of those it is, but if it's that second one, that, that's, that's a deep love for the true religion. Here's this man. The elders say, Jesus, he deserves to be heard. Because he is worthy. He loves the people of God. And he is generous towards the people of God. Puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to his faith. Even if he won't be circumcised. Those are two different perspectives on why Jesus should receive such a man. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's generous. And we might say, should Christians be all of those things? Well, of course, we ought to be all of those things. But is this what Christ finds impressive? Is this the kingdom character trait that most stands out in our text? No, we have one more witness as to why Christ should hear him. It's from the centurion's own mouth. And he says Christ should hear him Why? He declares, I'm not worthy. I I don't deserve to be heard. Nothing in my hands I bring. In fact, I'm so unworthy, not only should you not disgrace yourself by coming into my house. Which is how the Jews often treated Gentiles. It might be ceremonially unclean if we step foot in your house. We might be ceremonially unclean if we step foot in the house of a sinner or something. And he, he's listened, apparently, to the sermons at the synagogue. And he has a true sense of himself. He isn't worthy to have Christ step foot in his house. In fact, he says, I'm not even worthy to see you face to face. I'm not worthy to have a hearing with you. Now in Matthew, Matthew just tells us he came and spoke to Jesus. So one of two things is the case here. It could be that after sending his friends, finally his compassion for his servant is so deep. He comes anyway, even though he knows he's not worthy. Or it could be that Matthew is just alluding to his sending messengers as being the same thing as speaking to Jesus directly. 
It doesn't really matter which view it is. This man has a deep sense of his unworthiness. He doesn't come with his credentials. He doesn't come pointing out the obvious that as far as Rome is concerned, Jesus, a a carpenter without a home, from a pathetic little people in a defeated land, That this man, as far as Rome is concerned, is not worthy to even fix the hinges on the centurion's door. Is really far above the centurion. And he sees that. And that's what leads Christ to say, not that this man's compassion displays greatness. Not that his love or his generosity display greatness but that this humility mixed with intense faith in Christ this Christ says is great C.H. Spurgeon reflects on this text and reflects on sadly the church too often he comments something along these lines that So often, we find individuals who have a very great sense of themselves, and no one else in the church does. Or you have people who have a great sense of their worth, and the church thinks maybe they're okay. Or you have people who claim humility, verbally anyway. And everyone else has a low view of them too. But it's a very rare thing to find one who looks lowly at himself and everyone else speaks high praise. It's a sad thing that Spurgeon can say that of the church. But surely it's true, isn't it? We are too quick to beat our own drums. And sometimes no one else in the church would beat it for you if you took the time to actually pay attention and ask. Or sometimes we toot our own humility horns, I'm so humble, look at me. And everyone else would say, no, you're, you're nothing. You've, you've got the nothing part right. But oh, if only the church was more full of those who know their place before God and cry out, I am not worthy to be called your son. Who stand afar off saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, but of whom everyone else says, that is a great man of faith. That's a rare thing. And that's exactly what our Savior says of this centurion. A man of great faith, not even in Israel, have I found such faith. Oh, but we have Abraham as our father. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Here is a Gentile killer rejoicing to see Christ's day even though all he can see with earthly eyes 
is a homeless, unemployed carpenter. This is kingdom character. If we would have the character that would impress our king, let us be humble. Humble before him. Not what my hands have done. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Naked, Lord, come to you for dress. However rich our clothing may be from a worldly perspective. Helpless, look to you for grace. However important we think we are from a worldly perspective. Foul. Which could have two meanings if you're not looking at how it's spelled. Foul, I to your fountain fly. Wash me, because I'm not worthy. I'm not clean enough of myself to even ask a favor of you, Lord. And Lord, I'm not worthy to have you dwell in my home. But come in. And reign over it. May we have this type of humility before the great King Eternal. The great King Eternal. Let's consider then what the text teaches us about his authority and kingdom authority. Oh, that we would listen to this uncircumcised man. And learn what real authority is. He has something to teach us about real authority in general. And then he has things to teach us about the authority of Christ in particular. So let's hear this centurion out. What does he teach us about kingdom authority in general? He teaches us that true authority speaks and is obeyed by the one under its command. You could say the same thing in a different way, a way that maybe will grate at us a little bit more at times. That true authority must not be challenged by the one under it. See, I, I think I think we sometimes think of ourselves as obeying God, but only after. We have challenged, critiqued, and tried to wiggle out, wriggle out, whichever of those it is, from the command itself. First, we think we can debate Christ, and then maybe we'll obey him. That's not the view that this centurion has of true authority, is it? His view. His view is that if true authority speaks, it will not be challenged, but immediately obeyed. As a child, I was often reminded that to delay is to disobey. That's true for the adult as much as for the child. To put off. I once had a friend... a true believer, as far as I know, say to me, as a group of us had been debating a text in the New Testament that's not very popular, after discussing it 
and studying it together, this friend confessed to me that she believed that we were probably right about what a text was teaching. But she, this is a quote, didn't like it, so she was going to keep studying it. Which was just a way of saying, well, if I say that I'm still studying it, I can wait to practice what it probably commands. When really, shouldn't our attitude be, I'll obey what it probably commands, even if I don't like it, until I know otherwise. But we do those subtle games with ourselves, don't we? Well, as long as I can say, here's my bookmark in this one text of the New Testament that I don't like, and I'll go back and look at that again, and it might not be for five years. But as long as we can say there's that bookmark, as long as we can say, oh, I have a, a, a podcast tagged in, in, my, in my feed to go listen to what John Piper, or John MacArthur, or Pastor Bricker, or whomever thinks about that passage. Well, you know, I can, I can put off obedience. We, we do those kinds of things. What is the centurion's view? Well, he knows about authority. Because if he had given a command and it had been challenged, court-martial. No delay there. Postponement at the most till after, the, after this battle. That's it. That's how command works. And this isn't an egotistical man saying everyone just has to listen to me. Notice how he introduces himself I also am a man under authority. Just like he's saying, I think he's saying two things there, but one thing he's saying there is, just like I say to that messenger, go and tell that captain to flank the enemy, and I say to this other messenger, go tell that lieutenant to move his men in where the flanking unit is moving from. Just as... I say these things and send these men and they better immediately run down there. They better not stop for bathroom breaks and coffee breaks along the way. They better get down there in the midst of battle and the captain and the lieutenant at the other end have to do their thing. So also, he says, I'm under authority. If Caesar tells me, go, I go. Even if it makes me enemies, even if it puts me in harm's danger, harm's way, even if I don't particularly think that the Jews need to be subjugated again, I go. I'm a man under authority. Of course, I, I think he's implying something else there about being under Christ's authority as well. But it's implied. He's a subtle man talking about authority when he clearly means Christ's authority. Here, he teaches us about authority in general. Right authority must be obeyed without challenge and immediately. Something perhaps as Christ's disciples we need to practice more. Practice more. But he also teaches us something specific about Christ's authority. Two things, in fact, I think he teaches us about Christ's particular authority. One is that Christ's authority is not just over his disciples, but over the fallen creation itself. 
Do you realize that as you read what this man is asking from Christ? And he's not just saying, my servant is under your authority. So if you tell him to get better, he'll, he'll get better. That's not how sickness works. That's how some cults work, right? If you just believe that Jesus wants you to be healthy, you'll be healthy. But this centurion's no fool. He, he knows that's not how sickness works. If it was that way, he could have told his servant to get healthy. He had authority there. No, he needs one who has authority over something he doesn't have authority over. And he has no authority over the fallen creation, the death and decay that entered the world through sin. But see, there's no question about it. He's saying Jesus has that authority. Lord, if you speak, he'll be better. If you speak, the sickness will be gone. If you speak, the sickness doesn't have a choice. It must obey you. It's an astonishing thing, especially the Jews might add an astonishing thing coming from a Gentile. This is the type of faith we have in the authority of Christ. Who has the authority over fallen creation? Only God. The other thing... The other thing implied here about Christ's authority by the centurion is that it's not limited to location. I want you to think about your Old Testament miracles. Here comes Elijah. Greatest miracles in the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha, right? Here here these men come. What what happens? My My son is dying or dead. What do they have to do? Go upstairs, lay down on top of the kid while praying. There's a physical, there's a location issue there. Uh, He's not able to just say while he's still on the road, Ah, he'll be fine. Go home and he'll be well. The axe head falls in the river, which is going to be fun to preach on in uh, a year or so when we get there in the evenings. Uh, Axe head falls and and the prophet says, uh, does something, but he's there. He, He has to, there's a physical side to what's going on. There's a location issue. Something has to be done in that place for the axe head to float. But this man's implying that Christ doesn't have to be on site. The authority is good enough from a distance. Now, he understands that because something I already alluded to. As the centurion, he's not on the front lines, but he's still commanding the battle. This messenger goes and tells that captain what to do. He doesn't have to go tell the captain himself. He doesn't have to go inform this unit itself. He can stand far off on the mountainside and command the battle through messengers without being on Sight And his view of Christ is that Christ need only say the word and it will happen regardless of where Jesus is. Don't even, don't even tire yourself by making the journey across town. Just speak the word. And your authority is over this whole realm. Wherever 
wherever your rule is. And this centurion seems to have a good view of Christ's rule. Not unlike the, the famous one of Abraham Kuyper, that there's not a square inch in the entire cosmos in which the Lord does not say, Mine, mine. Well, Christ's, Christ's rule enables him to speak at a distance. He doesn't have to be on sight. Again, who can do these things? Only God. I'm not saying that the centurion comprehended that in a good Trinitarian way that you and I can from our New Testaments. But he understood enough. He understood at the very least that if Christ was only a man, he was the, he was the top of all creation. With special messianic authority from God himself. At the very least, he understood this. And Christ says, not so much faith in all of Israel. And all of this leads then to the conclusion that the the centurion forces upon us. That Christ's authority is real authority. That there is no other authority so real as Christ's authority. Notice what's distinct about Christ's authority from the centurions as I've been presenting it. The messengers get to the man's house. And what? The centurion speaks, the messenger gets there. Obedience. But what's the order of verse 10? The messengers get to the house. And the authority has already been obeyed. They were irrelevant. They don't come and say, Jesus says, get better. And the man gets up. They get there and the man is doing his stuff. He's doing his job. He's up and healthy. Maybe he's in the middle of an embrace with the centurion as the messengers walk through the door. They have nothing now to say that the man already doesn't know. Jesus spoke. And it was. Well, what are our applications or what should application be from this passage? I want to emphasize three things. The first is about healing. Let's just stick with that, which is in our text, for a moment. If Christ's authority is real, then if he speaks healing, it will happen. I wonder what our prayers for others in regards to healing really look like. I don't mean the words. It's possible for us to pray the words in the right way. But what we really believe in our hearts, when you pray for the sick, when when we pray for Donna, when we pray for Barb, when we pray for any one of our loved ones who is sick, what what is the authority level in our hearts as we pray this? Is it an absolute certainty that if Jesus says yes, then there will not be sickness? That if sickness remains, it's not because he wasn't quite able. I wonder at times if we pray for healing, 
not really believing healing could happen. And sometimes it doesn't. But shouldn't we be praying like the centurion, Lord, you don't even need to come in person. Just speak the word into that hospital bed. Speak the word into the house. Bring healing. Use doctors. Don't use doctors. Lord, we know you are able. We need to assess our hearts every time we pray for healing. Whether we are praying with this type of certainty. Second, of course, healing is only one example of the authority Christ has. This chapter is calling on us to view Christ in all his authority. And so we need to know not only if he speaks healing, will you be healed? But if you have Christ declaring your safety, that he will preserve you. You will be preserved. That nothing, nothing can touch you. Why? Because let's take a step back further from protection or preservation. That if the king speaks forgiveness, you are forgiven. If the king speaks pardon, no more trial is needed. If Christ pardons you, Well, we read it from his own mouth, didn't we? If the Son has set you free, you're not free contingently. You're free indeed. Christ has said it. His authority is real. Do not doubt. Do you doubt sometimes? Of course, I think we all do at some moment, don't we? We see our sin. And we wonder if our sin is more authority than our Savior. But the centurion would say to us, No, our Savior, you are unworthy. You are a sinner. You continue to be a sinner. It's not just that he was unworthy having never believed before. But like David, who'd been a believer his whole life, declaring not what my hands have done. I am unworthy. Wash me again, Savior, day after day of my continued sins. Purify me daily. So the centurion would have us say the authority of Christ to forgive me daily, to pardon and to preserve. If he speaks the word, believe it. It is true. The authority is real. And then finally, this text, with its placement right at the end of the Sermon on the Plateau and all those laws he has given us, this centurion then would say to us, if the one with authority to speak at a distance and heal a dying servant, his authority is real. If he says, whatever he says, If he gives us ten laws of a holy life before him, don't debate them. Obey them. If he preaches a sermon about loving your enemy, don't look for excuses. Obey him. If he 
displays for you through His apostles, through the New Testament, what you are to put off and what you are to put on. Don't hide part of it away to keep secretly. Put it to death. And don't hold off on some attribute you think sounds just too hard. Put on the likeness of Christ. His authority is real, and yes, He does have the right then to speak into the furthest corner of your life. Will you obey? Humbly. Knowing that He is the King, not you. If you are a kingdom citizen, this needs to be your daily challenge to yourself. I am the subject, but I have a good King, a compassionate King, a loving King, a King who gives generously. And He is commanded, but He has also promised that He will not leave us or forsake us. And that he will give us all that we need, all that we need to obey him each day. Thanks be to God.